The word of God this morning comes from Genesis chapter 31, and we're going to read sections. So if you just follow me, I'll tell you where to go from section to section. So we begin at Genesis chapter 31, and we're going to read the first three verses. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. We move on to chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. We move on to verse 22, still in chapter 32, but verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his four hundred men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. 
And we finish by reading the last two verses in chapter 33, beginning verse 18. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that we might meet you in it this morning. Speak to us, we pray. Take what is hard to understand and reveal it to us in a way that leaves us changed forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the end of our series in Genesis and we've seen some pretty strange things on the way, haven't we? Uh, And some fairly distasteful things. Last week we were looking at Jacob's family arrangements, the mess that his deceit and the deceit of his uncle Laban threw him and uh, those women, Rachel and Leah, and their servants into. Today's reading is in some ways, I think, even stranger, isn't it? Focusing as it does on this wrestling match between Jacob and an unnamed man on the bank of a river. A wrestling match that ends with the first time the people of God are called the children of Israel. Where he, for the first time, is called Israel. His whole identity, in a sense, is transformed by this encounter. But what is actually going on? I mean, when you read it, it's odd, isn't it? It is genuinely strange. Please, if you've got page 36 of your Bibles open, it'll be uh, easier for us to find our way through this. Because it is strange. So, here's the story so far, in potted form. Jacob, the younger twin has fought with his brother Esau, has has kind of vied with him to get the blessing that God promised to their grandfather Abraham. And he's won. But at the expense of his relationship to his brother who has sworn to kill him, so he's had to flee with time to take nothing with him but his stick to uh, the place Paddan Aram, hundreds of miles away, where his uncle Laban lived with his daughters. And he's got to Laban's house and he and Laban have been locked in this kind of struggle where they're trying to get one over on each other. And uh, Jacob's trying to get the daughter he prefers, even though she's younger in marriage. Uh, and Laban is trickier even than Jacob. And then there's, there's all this kind of trick and counter trick over how Jacob's wages are going to be counted out of the flocks that he tends. And that's why at the beginning of uh, the reading we had uh, Laban's sons uh, saying, oh, you know, Jacob's been cheating our father. Let's go get him. He's run off. So Jacob has fled from Laban. The thing we haven't uh, come across as we've uh, as we heard our reading is that uh, Laban's caught up with him. Laban and his sons armed to the teeth, ready to do violence. But God met with Laban in a dream and said, no. He, he, He didn't just say, don't touch him. He said, don't say anything to him, even good or bad. 
God has protected Jacob in that meeting with Laban. And it's from that meeting that we then uh, pick up with Jacob uh, in, uh, verse 30, in chapter 32, verse 1, uh, where he has this meeting with these angels of God that parallels a meeting he had with angels of God when he left the land of Canaan and fled to Paddan Aram. But now as he is going home, as God has told him, to go home, back to the land of promise, back to his family. Jacob knows he's going to have to confront his brother Esau, the brother who has sworn to kill him. And so the first thing he does is he sends messengers on ahead and says, look, I want you to basically eat the biggest slab of humble pie in front of Esau that you can. I want you to say that I'm his servant and he is my Lord, which is exactly the opposite of the prophecy that was made to his father in which it said the older will serve the younger, the older will be the servant, the younger will be the Lord. Here, Jacob says, go and say, I'm your servant, I am your slave, you are my Lord, to Esau. And anxiously waiting for messengers to come back. Will this be enough? Can his kind of peace envoys bring peace? What's going to happen when he meets Esau? He hears these terrifying words. When the messengers returned to Jacob, this is chapter 32, verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you with 400 men. The next verse, which we didn't read, says this. In great fear and distress, Jacob. 400 men, that was the small army. That was the standard size of a raiding party. If you were going out uh, to, uh, to plunder and pillage, 400 men. Here comes Esau at the head of an army, ready to meet Jacob. What is going to happen? This is going to be the encounter that defines his life. He is going to meet his brother and it's life or death. So he prays that God will protect him. The God who's made a promise to him, who's told him to go home, he says, protect me. And Jacob prepares to meet his brother. They come to this place called the Jabbok. It's a tributary of the Jordan. Uh, And he sends everyone on ahead. And he stays behind. And we're not really sure why. Other than maybe he, he, he wants to get ready for what's coming the next day. Perhaps he wants to spend time in prayer, in reflection. He wants to metaphorically gird up his loins to be ready to confront Esau. But then this very strange thing happens and there's this man and there's this wrestling. Let's just look, let's just see how strange it is. There's Jacob and a man and they wrestle till daybreak. And this is kind of fighting for your life, wrestling. It's the sort of thing that you might, it's it's a kind of standard thing in, in literature. It's there in kind of cultures all the way through, kind of spiritual creatures guarding River crossings. Think about trolls living under bridges, okay? And, and 
it, to start with, it looks like something like that. Jacob is wrestling with this man, this guardian of the crossing, perhaps. And they fight. I don't know if you've ever wrestled, though. Like, really wrestled. I reckon I can go about a minute before I start to think, I am running out of steam. Like, when I say I can, I, re- I reckon, like, in my mid-twenties, I could go about a minute. I haven't tested it more recently. <laughs> but it's all night. That's strange. Okay, to fight all night, it's unusual, to say the least. So, first of all, there's this fight that just goes on and on and on. Then you have, very strange, verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And that word that's for touched, it's, it's not like he gave him a big thump, it's like a gentle touch. Just the merest brush. So on the one hand, you have this man who is saying, oh, I can't overpower Jacob. I know what I'll do. I'll dislocate his hip just by gently touching him. That's strange, isn't it? That should make you scratch your head and think, hang on, this isn't normal. In fact, that dislocating of his hip is so significant that we read at the very end, the first time the Israelites, the children of Israel, are mentioned in the whole Bible. It's to tell us that they don't eat. When they eat a sheep or a cow uh, or an ox or whatever, they don't eat the tendon that's attached to the hip. So it's a pretty significant thing in the story, isn't it? It shows us something. But what does it show us? And why does it become so sacred? His hip was wrenched, dislocated as he wrestled with the man. And then the man says, let me go for it's daybreak. And Jacob says, I won't let you go. Why is that strange? Well, because if this is some sort of crossing guard, some guardian of the crossing, trying to sort of make Jacob kind of, you know, show that he's worthy to cross the river or something. Well, then it's Jacob who's saying, let me go, isn't it? Release me, let me go on. Or at least when, when, when you know, the, the person he's fighting with, this man he's fighting with, says, let me go, Jacob's going to go, yeah, okay, on, I'll go on with my journey. But No. Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And then the man says, okay, fine, what's your name? That's not the obvious kind of... and I mean, mean, that's the sort of thing you have if someone comes to a book signing, isn't it? You know, what's your name? I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay, what's your name? My name is Jacob. Hmm, Jacob. One thing that's slightly hidden from us in English translation is jabok is kind of the word that's being used for wrestling here, for, stri- for striving, for contending, for fighting. Uh, and it's probable that the river gets its name from this encounter. Much like Bethel, the, the place that uh, Jacob had his dream of the angels ascending and descending on the ladder, it gets the name Bethel from that moment. But we're kind of introduced to it because there's a bit of a pun here. This man appears and jabbocks with Jacob. He out-Jacobs him. What's your name, Jacob? The heel grasper, the, 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 the trickster, the fighter, the wrestler. And the man says, no more. You'll be called Israel. For you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. 
And then Jacob, so what's your name? To get the reply simply, never you mind what my name is. And then he blesses him. And then Jacob starts to help to explain what's actually going on here. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And that face to face thing is really significant here. It really helps us to understand. Let me try to explain. In verse 20 and verse 21, uh, if you just look back to them, of chapter 32, Jacob's instructing people to go and speak to Esau. Uh, and he gives them these instructions, and then it says, For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead later. When I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Now, if you were translating that kind of just literally word for word, or you know, transliterating it, just saying, well, this is what all the words mean, it would read something like this. For he thought, I will cover his face with these gifts I'm sending to my face. Later, when I look on his face, perhaps he will show me a kind face. The idiom is all about Esau showing Jacob a, a, a kind face, covering over the face of wrath, showing the face of kindness, Jacob seeing him face to face and it being okay. Just before I explain why I think that's so significant, there's one other verse I would just like you to pay attention to. Uh, and it's this, back in chapter 31 and verse 42, where Jacob is talking to Laban about the dream Laban has had that has kind of warned Laban off attacking Jacob. And this is what he says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Do you notice what he calls God in relation to his own father Isaac. It says here in translation, the fear of Isaac. The Jewish theologian Robert Alter translates it as the terror of Isaac. The God who was the terror of Isaac has rebuked you. So look, here's what I think is going on. Jacob has gone through his life getting one over on people, fighting to get what he wants. And he has seen God as the way to get what he wants. And in his prayer in chapter 32, before he comes to this ford, he prays that God will protect him from Esau. What he wants is to see Esau face to face and survive. Now that is a prayer that God answers but what's happening here at the Jabbok is that the real issue, the heart of everything for Jacob, is finally being confronted. Because you see, in the end, it is not seeing Esau face to face that he really needs to worry about. 
It is seeing God face to face. He sees God as, as there to protect him from those who would hurt him. But who, Jacob, is going to protect you from God? You see, God is not Jacob's pet. He is not under Jacob's control. He does not owe Jacob anything. And God is not simply there to help Jacob out of a tough spot, to give Jacob what he needs. Jacob has been treating God all his life as a means to an end. And now, God confronts Jacob with himself. That is, God confronts Jacob with God himself, but also in the fact that here at the Jabbok, he Jacob's Jacob, actually he's confronting Jacob with Jacob himself as well. This is the moment. This is the turning point of the story. This is the definitive moment in Jacob's life. Not his meeting with Israel, his meeting with Esau rather, but his meeting with the living God. That's, that's the crucial thing. That's the defining moment in his life. And actually, that is the thing of which he ought to have been most terrified. So he says, I saw God face to face and my life was spared. In fact, and yet my life was spared. There's a wonderful uh, little passage in C.S. Lewis's Wonderful book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I'm sure many of us have read. And it's an extraordinary story. I remember being absolutely captivated by, a kid, by it as a kid without any kind of understanding of what was really going on in the story. But there's this moment where the children, um, if you don't know the story at all, um, it's very normal. They walk through the back of a magical wardrobe and end up in a country that's permanently covered in snow and filled with talking animals. Okay? Uh, and these talking animals speak of a king a rightful king uh, of uh, their land, Narnia, uh, and this king's name is Aslan, the lion in the story. And this is how the conversation goes. Oh yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once, for once again that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he's come back. He's in Narnia. At this moment, he'll settle the white queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. <laughs> lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone. If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face... It'll be the most she can do, and more than I expect of her. No, no. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here, for I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. <laughs> Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. 
Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Is your God safe? Is he tame? Then you have yet to have an encounter like that of Jacob at the Jabbok. To start with, he is wrestling with God, trying to get past him to what he really wants. But by the end, he is clinging on and saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In other words, he's realized that it's not what God can get him, but it is God that he needs in his life. And to get to that point, he has had to face up not only to who God is, to the one who is the terror of Isaac, the God who is so good and so powerful that it is terrifying to meet him. And to come face to face with yourself in meeting him. The God whose goodness is so perfect that he cannot tolerate even the slightest hint of evil. The God who is so truthful that he cannot tolerate even the slightest hint of deceit. The God who is so pure that he cannot tolerate even the slightest hint of perfection. Confronted with him, our knees should knock. And the question that then comes up is, how is it that Jacob, Jacob of all people, the deceiver, can meet with this God, the living God, and come away, well, not unscathed, with a permanent limp, but alive and transformed. This, friends, is the heart of what it means to become a Christian, to come to know God as he really is, But generally that means also experiencing a terrible recognition of who we are and what we need from him. And so you have this strange picture of a man wrestling with Jacob who at once has the power to dislocate his hip without even trying. Who could just eradicate him, wipe him off the face of the earth by blowing on him. but at the same time allows himself to be overcome. The God who is simultaneously all-powerful and unimaginably great, and yet willing to be weak for the sake of the people that he loves. So Jacob wrestles with the living God and in a sense he wins but only in a sense it is God who wins really 
And Jacob from this moment is utterly transformed. So at the end of our reading, what happens when he finally gets to the place that God has told him to call home? He buys some land and what does he use that land for? To build an altar to the God of Israel, the God who is mighty, he says, as he builds that altar, El Elohe Israel. I wonder, have you confronted yourself and God in that way? And come to realize what it was that God was willing to do in order to welcome you as a friend and not as a foe. We looked briefly last week at Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, thinking about Leah uh, and how God chooses the unattractive, the unlovely, how Jesus himself came as one with nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That passage from Isaiah 53 explains how it is that God himself can meet with us and yet we survive and indeed thrive. Though I don't know that Isaiah fully understood what he was writing, speaking about the Son of God made flesh, as we reflect on in Advent and at Christmas, this is what he says about what God did for us. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By rights, when Jacob wrestled with God, he should have been obliterated. He should have been crushed. And yet, away he limped. Why? How can God treat Jacob like that? The liar, the cheat, the grasper. He himself found a way to bear what Jacob had coming in himself and so there is no need to dread meeting God opening yourself up to him allowing him to show you himself and yourself because though that feels terrifying he's already borne the consequences of that in his own body on the tree the cross on which Jesus died I know that some of us are really wrestling with God. We're going through that experience of not being sure that we really want to let him in. With Mrs. Beaver, I would say to you, he is not safe. But he is good. And you can trust him. And so Jacob's story When he leaves the promised land and heads out towards Paddan Aram, it's sunset. But now, as he comes back into the land, having wrestled with God, what does the writer of Genesis tell us? And the sun rose over Jacob. At the end of the long dark night of the soul, 
There is a glorious morning.